Best of days. This is Dr. Carol Francis. I'm a clinical psychologist and a marriage family child therapist. We're going to talk today about attention deficit disorder, different attention deficit disorder types with hyperactivity and without, and also what you do as a parent and some tips for you to use today. Then we're going to move into talking a little bit about sex and marriage again to see if we can move that relationship into deeper and better intimacy. And finally, let's talk about aging. Let's not be afraid to talk about aging. It's a real factor for lucky. We're going to age, I guess, if we're lucky. So join us today on Dr. Carol Francis, and let's start off with attention deficit disorder. Attention deficit disorder has many different forms nowadays where we can actually look at the brain and find that there are different ways that the brain is processing oxygen and in what patterns. So as a consequence, you can have different types of attention difficulties than different types of kids. That's why and sometimes you have it with hyperactivity. Sometimes you have it that they can concentrate, but they can't a change or shift, or they might be able to pay attention if you draw their mind to something that moves kind of rapidly. Oh, there's so many different variations of attention deficit disorder. It's probably not completely understood. Isn't that depressing for parents? However, think about a hundred years ago when you might have lived on a farm or during the industrial revolution when your child would probably be doing some work for some industry. In other words, it's really in this generation, the last, I'd say, 75 years, where we have actually emphasized children going to school, sitting still, and doing written assignments. That's not normal for a majority of the individuals out there, especially little boys going through school during the first five years. So as a consequence, you are dealing with something that would be better handled in a circumstance where they could have a trade, they could work as an apprentice, they could be involved in the farm, they could go and build or make something, or they could run out in the fields and go crazy for the time. It is these kids that get disenfranchised by a system that says that they should conform, and if they can't, there's something wrong with them, as opposed to that system does not match those particular type of children. So if you're a parent along those lines, the first thing I would like you to do is look at your child and imagine him in his right or her right environment. Think about what type of attitude and what type of activity would make this child feel like he fits somewhere and that the skills and the energy and the creativity and the bounding sort of mental process that moves from one thing to the next to the next actually it might fit a circumstance much better than fitting school. And as a consequence, those people who could sit still at school wouldn't function very well in an environment where the ADD individual might. So that's your first task as a parent is to look at your child and pretend that you can imagine him in an environment that matches him. The, the, a parents that match him, a living circumstance that matches him, a, a creative, expressive, constructive series of activities and environment that would match him or her. These are what I want you to do. That way it will help you appreciate what the schools can't, which is what your child has to offer naturally. Now, of course... If you don't have the freedom to be able to get your child into circumstances that match your child's already beautiful, wonderful way of being in the world, you want to help your child to be able to conform to some degree. It's sad, but it is a reality of our society. So the sadness of that and the reality, if you choose to accept that, means you're going to have to find ways to help your child to be able to tap into who they are 
and to get themselves to pay attention. Well, when you're doing homework with your young child, you must realize with attention deficit disorder, they need you prompting them on a regular basis. It might be one time every 60 seconds. It might be one time every three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes. So that you're prompting them, what are you doing now? Show me, I really want to know. Oh, you got that done. Let's do the next one. How do you start this? So as soon as you see them stuck, you're right there helping them unstuck. Now, I want you to think about stuckness for a moment. Usually, an individual is only stuck when they do not understand how to do something. So if they're stuck, it may be that there's just something that they haven't learned because of the cottage cheese or the Swiss cheese impact of being able to pay attention and then tuning out, pay attention. So they just don't understand that particular function or that particular answer, that particular analytic skill or memory moment so that they need something that gets them out of that stuck moment and moves them into the next. And you're the adjunct for that, either you or a tutor, because a teacher doesn't have the time to do that. So imagine here you are studying with that child and you're kind of observing from a distance. They work and work and work. Suddenly they begin to float around and you say, well, show me what you have done so far. They're back on task because you're with them. You've done a great job on getting your attitude in there as opposed to saying, come on, pay attention, do it. Because all that negative stuff only creates more resistance and blockage for you and your child, by the way. Now you're back in the flow of it. Oh, tell me, show me what you've done so far. Now it stops. You see your child floating around and attentive again. You go, oh, I think I know what you need to learn in order to be able to move on this next spot. As soon as you learn it, you're going to be able to do great. Now you get them unstuck, show them that little phase of what's going on and see if they can apply it or do it themselves and then you give them lots of positive reward. Now, positive reward might be in the form of an M&M, might be the in the form of a social reinforcement, such as, oh, great job. It might be their own personal satisfaction. They were been able to master something and move on, but that's going to be more advanced. Okay, so that's a little tip about homework. How about organizing? Well, you need to make sure that every day their uh, backpack is organized so that they know what's going to be a separate color folder for what's going to be turned into the teacher. There's more than one teacher that have a folder that has each of those classes in there. So it prompts a child to go there every class and then turn in the assignment. At the end of the day after homework, you're going to make sure the homework that's done is in that section. At the beginning of homework time, you're going to make sure you know what the homework is. It's tedious, but you cannot be a hands-off parent if you're trying to get your ADHD or ADD child to conform to the situation associated to academic everyday school. So as a consequence, you're the organizer. Now, you're going to do this in the most pleasant, positive way. Don't sit there and say, why can't you do this on your own? You are supplementing themselves so that they begin to learn the muscle of organizing themselves with ADD. Now, every day you make sure they've turned their homework in. Just don't assume it. If they have not turned their homework in, you have them somehow contact the teacher to tell them, either by phone or by now, since we have email, and so that the student says, I've had this in here, I noticed it, I forgot to turn it in today. Can I turn it in tomorrow? So you are already going to have a relationship with your teacher saying, look at my son, my daughter's diagnosed with this, we have a 504, or whatever your state has that accommodates a learning disability or a complication. 
and they're going to understand that you're right on top of the process trying to help your child optimize one their learning of the information and two their regurgitation and utilization practicing with that information which they've been given okay these are some tips for the day also consider that if your child has a smartphone there there are some wonderful applications out there where you can get them to see what their assignments are you can know what the assignments are and you can also know what their schedule is and they can check in with it and there's ways to get them to ding you pay attention and also use those timers on those phones as opposed to them having the social networking distractors where uh, every two or three minutes it goes ding which is to bring them back into attention or some sort of statement which you can record that says hi hope you're doing well go ahead and pay attention again because that usually get them back on track and again you have to know how long is the length of the time and before your child gets inattentive when they're not stuck which is different than when they're inattentive when they are alright we're going to continue our talk to marriage and intimacy in just a moment Men and women, your appetite of sexuality is not the same. Usually, we're a little closer. In fact, we're a lot closer these days between the male-female differences in terms of the ability and freedom to express themselves sexually and to be very sexually excited and to be eager to have sex. But we're still miles apart and when it comes to marriages and longevity and children and things of that sort. So there are little tips you're just going to have to start employing. And some are going to work, some are not going to work for you and for the other person. Women, let me talk to you just for a moment. You know that becoming sexual has everything to do with the way you enjoy your own body, the way you are turned on sensually by your own sensations of enjoying touching your body, enjoying grooming your body. I'm not a big um, Prada fan by a long shot. I really like the natural, but I'm, <laughs> I'm very aware that every woman is different in terms of what makes them feel beautiful and what makes them feel sexual. And so why it would be nice for your husband to make you feel sexual each and every time he wants to have sex with you, which for many men is often, a lot more often than for women. I would say the ratio is probably about 1 to 10, women wanting sex, men wanting sex, 1 to 10. But even that ratio may not match your particular situation, but it's a big, it's a big difference. So, women, you, you want to be able to dress in a way that makes you know that you feel sexy underneath. I don't care what body type you have, what size you have, how much weight you have on, whether you like your body or not, or how old it is. If you're wearing something pretty underneath and you know it's pretty every time you go to the bathroom or shower, then you're going to feel different. If you if you like the way your the garment that you have on, you're going to feel different. You're going to also practice something else, which is learning how to move your shoulders and your face, your your rib cage and your waist and your hips so that you feel the freedom and the swing of your body hinging easily together and moving with the flow. Now, that flow is going to come from inside of you where you're just getting in touch with, in a sense, kind of like a meditation, getting in touch with the easiness of your body when it just feels attractive, but not attractive in a sexy, gee, does that man like me sort of way, but in that inside you, it just feels good to be in your body. And those moments you want to be able to enjoy and move and swing with it.
Okay, then. Now, if your women are able to do any of those particular tips, great, you're lucky. But you know you can help out too, right? If you want your woman to have sex with you, then you need to help her feel sexy. It doesn't get any more complex than that, right? These are easy formulas. It's no different than if you're going to do a recipe, you follow the recipe and you get the ingredients. So one of the ingredients is helping them feel sexy. So you have to make the statements that will go into their brain that make them reflect on themselves as if, oh, I am attractive, I am sexy. Now, for some women, talking about certain body parts or touching certain body parts will do it. But for the most part, that usually works for a man better than a woman. Now, women are very language-based men. So as a consequence, it's the words you use. And if they're loving, romantic, and reflective of her value and worth and how much you appreciate her, she's more likely to tune in to you because she likes what you're thinking about her. Yep. She likes what you're thinking about her. So she believes that she exists inside of your mind and inside of your emotions in a way that reflects that you value her as a human being on all sorts of different planes and all sorts of different fronts, and that you also just appreciate how beautiful she is as a human being and then physically as well. But if you're just looking at body parts, your woman's going to feel like she's no more than that body part. She should just hand you the piece. She should be no different than a plastic doll. And while that might work for a man, it might even work for some women. It doesn't work for most, especially once they're married with kids. So, men, you've got to know the formula. Don't keep thinking that your women need to respond to the way you want them to think about sex. You've got to figure out what makes them feel sexy. Huh. Figuring out the puzzle pieces of a woman. Well, that's one reason why you married a woman, because they were intriguing, and they were puzzling, and they were mysterious. And while men, you're exhausted and don't want to have to work that hard many days, it is part of the package. At least most packages. Okay, that's a little bit of tip for sex improvement in the marriage. And now we're going to go on to moments about aging. Oh, don't groan. Don't get a whole modeling on me. Growing old is a great package associated to having a healthy lifestyle, but we need to be thinking about growing old. All right. I would say that in the United States since about the 1920s during the Flapper Age, right before we went through the Great Depression, we were a lot more in touch with our elderly and what it meant to get old because we lived next to to the elderly members of our family or they were in our community and then we participated in their well-being either they took care of us and they still it still does happen to some degree in our culture or we took care of them or both but we were more in touch with what it meant to grow old and what it meant to respect the elderly because they had so much wisdom and years behind them and experiences but also we knew what to expect in terms of either dying graciously or not, but in our current mentality of 2015 or later, when you're listening to this, aging is something we try to avoid. We have ageless medicine, anti-aging medicine, cosmetic industry, and we're very oriented toward trying to be as youthful as we can. And while that's good on the front of trying to maintain ourselves physically, 
being fit all the way to the grave, uh, being being active all the way to the grave, not feeling like we're not useful, and instead being very useful and productive as far as we possibly can extend it, not being a burden on our family members because we try to be as independent as we can be. All those qualities are fantastic. But we need to be able to look at our own aging process and say, okay, this is inevitable. If I'm lucky and I'm healthy, I will live a long time. And therefore, how am I going to approach doing that and most of the time, people begin to think about this mid-40s. They should probably be thinking about it mid-teens, but actually mid-40s is when the body changes in women very radically, and about 50s is when the men definitely notice the body changes as well. Men, though, you go through what's called a midlife crisis, and all women do to some degree as well. Men, you tend to look at the younger women and enjoy that they find you distinguished and attractive and their appetite for sexuality more matching your burgeoning appetite, especially if you're in a marriage that's been weighted down by children and finances and arguments and nagging and so forth and so on. So men, you try to find your new youthfulness by connecting with people that are younger than you. In our society, that can also happen for women. We don't need to be living by the stereotypes, but in terms of the stereotypes, more often it happens for men than for women. So, women, I you're going to have to find your own sense of what it means to go into your own midlife crisis, embracing the vigorousness of life. And we're actually going to talk more about that on a show that's going to be interviewing Lisa Marie Jenkins called Wake Up Beauty. But for today, I want you to be thinking just about aging. Now, in order to be able to assist you to do that, I found movies are a great way to kind of contemplate different phases of life. But in the United States, we tend to not look totally at the process of aging other than just a moment of Hollywood touching it or in some sort of very narrow way. But I'd like you to tap into two movies. Of course, you can get these on Netflix, which is a bit of a plug for Netflix. One is called All Together. It's actually a French movie, and Jane Fonda is actually in it. Jane Fonda is an iconic woman who's well into her 70s, beautiful, active, creative, and though, as a consequence, she is facing aging in probably a more carefully monitored way than most of us are capable of doing. This is all about knowing what you're going to do with yourself when you find yourself alone, how you connect with relationships when you're elderly, what sort of investment in friendships, what are some alternate ways of living together or not, how to face whether retirement homes or something of that sort is going to take part of it, and definitely what death is going to be all about for you as you face the death of friends and your own decline, including dementia. Another series that's fascinating to watch is Inspector Morse. Now, this is a British uh, series that's also on Netflix. Inspector Morse is about a man that over an eight-year period of time is toward the end of the last year, last eight years of his career and is a marvelous portrayal of someone who suffers from loneliness and relationship difficulties, and yet is amazingly capable within his own profession and what it means to be grumpy, surly, negative, aging, not taking care of your body, taking care of your body, and also being productive and contributing to your society and what it means to interface with the youth that's coming up with a new technology, the new approach to things, and what's what it means in terms of your own value and worth. These are questions we have to ask as we're getting older. There's a single one of us that's not going to be replaced by those that are younger. 
And yet those that are younger are not going to have the experiences that make us so capable when we're old. But let's go into the other aspect of this. A lot of people, as they're getting older, they begin to not be so resilient about being able to learn new things. And their old way of doing things seems to be quite fine. But nowadays, our society is changing so much with technology and what's available for us. Either you're going to be a dinosaur really quickly, or you're going to take the time, at least a day or so every month, to acquaint yourself with the brand new ways of doing the same thing you've been doing all along. Some of those things will be such a waste and not as efficient, but others of them will be starkly important for you to know because your industry will be moving into that particular aspect of it. For example, I'm in the world of psychology, as you know, and psychological assessment has always been done face-to-face, -face, hands-on, with the manipulation of objects or books or materials that allow an individual to interplay with the three-dimensionality of particularly problem-solving. That would even go to the very fact of solving math problems by way of writing it all down. But now, with the advent of technology, those very same tasks are now available entirely by using pads and tablets, which is an entirely different motif than what we did 38 years ago when I started my training in this. So it is an interesting move, is it not? That even the definition of testing for IQ or psychopathology or levels of adaptiveness are now just a tablet form away. Just connect to the internet, download the test, hand the tablet to your person, and away you go. And then it's scored for you, and even the interpretive test is written for you. So interesting to move in that, as opposed to all the labor-intensive work we used to do, when, quite frankly, we were using carbon paper or white erasers and not even having computers to write our information on. It's a big leap, and that big leap only took place in a matter of about 25 years. So in my field, absolutely essential to stay up on the next technology that's there for us to make our life more dynamic and usable, but definitely more modern. Well, these are three approaches to life. Parents dealing with ADD or adults dealing with ADD, attention deficit disorder. Some tips for increasing that delicious sexual interaction in your marriage. And now, what about aging? To say nothing of dying. Well, this is Dr. Carol Francis, facing life and making life happen today with vigor, vim, and curiosity, and not ever slowing down. Take care. Have a good day.